one of the most fascinating subjects to study in relation to the Bible is Bible prophecy. The Old Testament is literally filled with predictions made by the prophets long ago that find their fulfillment in either the person and work of Jesus Christ or else something related to the nation of Israel. However, tonight we want to look at what has got to be one of the most unusual prophecies mentioned in the Bible because there is no mention of this prophecy in the Old Testament. Only the New Testament speaks of it. I can't think of anything else quite like it in Scripture. And the prophecy I'm referring to is found in Jude, verses 14 and 15. So let's turn there. Jude, verses 14 and 15. We're not going to be able to even complete our study tonight of this, these two verses. Just want to get into it and go a little bit beneath the surface. Here's what Jude says. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And then he adds in verse 16, Jude says they are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Now, Jude speaks of a prophecy made by the Old Testament character Enoch concerning the coming of the Lord to judge the ungodly. He mentions the ungodly several times in these two verses. Yet there is no record of this prophecy in Scripture, except right here. So before we proceed in our study tonight, I want to first address the uniqueness of this prophecy and then begin to look at least a little bit at its contents and meaning. First of all, Jude tells us this prophecy was made by a man named Enoch. But who was Enoch? Well, Jude identifies him. He calls him the seventh generation from Adam, which means that this is the man mentioned in Genesis 5 as the seventh descendant from Adam, the first man, and he is the, the descendant of Adam in the line of Seth. And I take it that the reason he is mentioned as the seventh from Adam and not just Enoch is to distinguish him from another Enoch in the early days of man's history who was the son of Cain. Cain had a son named Enoch. That's not this man. This is the seventh descendant from Adam in the line of Seth. Now, let's look at Genesis chapter five to see what the Bible says about Enoch. There's really not a whole lot that we have to go on. But Genesis chapter five, starting at verse 21, we read this. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, we read that Enoch was a godly man in really an increasingly ungodly, corrupt world, a world that eventually ended up being judged by the Lord as he sent 
the flood. This was the generation of the flood. But we are told here that Enoch, unlike most in his generation, in fact, all in his generation, he walked with God, meaning that he was a true believer. He was a genuine believer who lived his life characterized by obedience to the Lord. But notice something very unique about Enoch. Notice he never died. The man never Died. Now, this is an unusual statement, obviously, to read about somebody who never died, but it stands out in chapter 5 because the real message of Genesis chapter 5 is that everybody who lived died. Let me show you what I mean. Genesis chapter 5, notice the reoccurring phrase. In verse 8, we read, So all the days of Seth were 912, and he died. This is a, really a genealogy. Verse 8. 11. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. Moses is just giving us a genealogical perspective of the sons of Adam through the godly line of Seth. Then verse 14. So all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. And on and on it goes. It's just repeated throughout the chapter. This man was a descendant of Adam. And he died because we all die in Adam, except we're told concerning Enoch in verse 24. He was not for God took him. That is to say, he never died. As one Bible teacher put it, Enoch simply walked. He walked on into the presence of God. He walked with God and he just kept walking. And God supernaturally took him to heaven. How? Exactly what were the surroundings, what we don't, we don't know. But he didn't die. He walked into the presence of God. Now, the only other time Enoch's name is mentioned in the Old Testament is just a brief statement in First Chronicles chapter 1. That's part also of a genealogy. His name is just mentioned. In the New Testament, other than Jude, he is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 as one of the heroes of faith. And all we really read about him is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Why was he pleasing to God? The next statement said, because Faith is what pleases God. Enoch was a godly man who had genuine faith and God took him home. He never experienced death. Now, that's pretty much all that we know in the Bible about Enoch, a unique man. And the uniqueness of Enoch as a man who did die and the fact that the scriptures are essentially silent about him, apart from those isolated statements, made him a very intriguing figure to ancient Jewish people. And as a result of the Jewish people's fascination with Enoch, a number of legends developed about this man over the years, especially between the time of the close of the Old Testament, about 400 B.C., to the opening of the New Testament. So a period of about 400 years, legends arose about Enoch. And it was during this, what's known as the intertestamental period, that two pieces of literature dealing with end-time visions were written that were said to be ascribed to Enoch as 
the author. In fact, there are a lot of religious books, for the most part fictional books, that were written during that time period. But two of these books were said to have been written by Enoch. Now, obviously, they were not written by Enoch. He was in heaven, not on earth. He died many thousands of years before this time. These were not inspired books. These are known as apocrypha books, books um, uh, of some historical nature and in certain cases, but for the most part, just fictional books, not inspired, and therefore they were not included in the canon of Scripture. But one of these books ascribed to Enoch is a book called The Book of Enoch. In fact, many uh, or a number of fragments of this book were found with the Dead Sea Scrolls in the late 1940s in Israel. Not inspired, but it is very significant because Jude appears to quote from this book and he attributes what he said as a legitimate prophecy made by Enoch. So, how do we explain this in light of the fact that the book of Enoch was not written by him, nor was it an inspired book. Well, first of all, we need to note that Jude doesn't actually say that he's quoting from this book called the book of Enoch. He may very well be quoting from it, but he doesn't actually say it. It may very well be that God directly revealed this information to Jude that Enoch indeed, thousands of years ago, gave this Prophecy, and God may have simply revealed it to Jude. Or it's possible that this information about Enoch's prophecy was handed down orally from one generation to the other, and the Lord led Jude then and preserved this truth and led Jude to record it in Scripture. But more than likely, Jude was actually quoting from the book of Enoch because his statement of what he writes is so similar to what was recorded in this book. It's, it's very likely that he is quoting from the book of Enoch. However, if that is the case, then we need to understand that the fact that Jude quotes from Enoch, the book of Enoch, doesn't mean that he considered this a book that was inspired by God, but only... Note this, only that the portion that he quoted from was true. This was a legitimate prophecy made by Enoch and accurately recorded down in this book many years later. Here's how one Bible teacher explained Jude quoting from the book of Enoch. He writes, Bible scholars tell us that this quotation is from an apocryphal book called the book of Enoch. The fact that Jude quoted from this non-biblical book does not mean the book is inspired and trustworthy. Any more than Paul's quotations from the Greek poets put God's seal of approval on everything they wrote. The Spirit of God led, he writes, led Jude to use this quotation and make it a part of inspired scripture, of the inspired scripture. See, the fact that Jude quotes from a fictional book doesn't mean that he endorsed the whole book as reliable. It doesn't mean that at all. But simply that the specific information that Jude quoted about Enoch was accurate. That's all that this is saying. In other words, we can be sure that if Jude said that Enoch made this prophecy, orally made this prophecy, then Enoch did. That's really all we need to understand about that. So, Jude is quoting 
from Enoch. And that means this is a legitimate prophecy given by this godly Old Testament believer. The question is then, what does the prophecy say? What's it about? What are the contents of this prophecy? Well, let's look at this again. Let me read it to you again. Jude, verses 14 and 15. It was also about these men, meaning these apostates, that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, I think it's obvious just from a a glance at these verses that the broad overall message of this prophecy is that the Lord is coming back. He's coming back to judge the ungodly, meaning all unbelievers. And Jude's point is that this includes apostates. God is so determined that he will judge apostates. And Jude is so determined that his people understand this that he wants them to know that even Enoch predicted this. Now, Jude is compelled to tell us this because he has just said in verse 13 that apostates are going to be judged by God by experiencing the black darkness of hell forever. Notice verse 13. He calls them wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. Then he calls them wandering stars. They're like stars shooting through the night for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. And now he turns to Enoch's ancient prophecy to support his statement about their judgment. That is to say that Jude is speaking once again, and he's done this throughout his book, of the certainty of God judging apostates. These false teachers who had infiltrated the churches of Jude's day, he, um, he will judge them for sure. And the proof that God will indeed judge them is that Enoch, this great man of God, even predicted way back before the flood the coming of the Lord to judge those who rejected him. Now, this is about the second coming of Christ. That's what he's talking about. That's the judgment he's talking about. Enoch is not talking about the flood. The Lord didn't come personally at the flood. Talking about the return of Christ. And I want you to know that is a subject that many Bible teachers don't speak about anymore. They used to speak about it more often, but not as as much today. And I suppose there are a number of reasons for that. First of all, it's a controversial subject, and the mood of the church these days is to stay away from controversy. It does tend to confuse Christians because there are so many end-time interpretations. There are so many books on the market about that. There's so many pamphlets, so many Bible teachers who have somewhat addressed those issues that it does confuse Christians. It has also been presented at times, Bible prophecy has been presented in ways that are sensational rather than biblical, where Bible teachers try to interpret the Bible by current events, always a bad approach. But regardless of the challenges that come with the doctrine of the coming of Christ, the return of Christ, the Bible very clearly speaks of it, and we need to also. I think one reason some Christians never seem to refer to the second coming, whether they have a 
public ministry or in their own private lives is because it has been so mocked and so scorned by unbelievers that they're a little embarrassed by it, a little bit intimidated to bring it up because it seems like it's been such a long time that it'll never happen. That's exactly what Peter wrote about. Look, look with me, if you will. Second Peter chapter three. Peter said that this would happen. He said in verse three of his third chapter, second Peter three, three, know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Peter says that even now in his day, there were mockers arising and there will be more mockers and more mockers who will scorn and ridicule the second coming of Christ. Say, look, everything just continues the way it is. You Christians are just fanatics. You're waiting for the return of Christ. He's not coming back. Nothing ever changes. And so I suspect that some Christians are a little intimidated by this. False teachers do deny the doctrine of Christ's return. And why do they deny it? It's very clear from Second Peter, the reason they deny it is because the second coming of Christ speaks of God's judgment. Yes, Jesus is coming to deliver his people, especially Israel. He's also coming to establish his kingdom. But he is primarily returning to this earth in judgment as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so it's natural that false teachers would deny the doctrine of Christ's return because they don't want to think of the fact that they will someday have to stand before him and give an account for their wicked behavior. And so they mock it as if that'll make it untrue. The more they mock it, the more it might be uh, just cast aside as untrue. Now, Jude speaks of the Lord's coming in judgment because he wanted to assure his original readers and people like us who 2000 years later are reading this letter that Christ really is coming back and he's coming back again to execute judgment on unrighteous men, men who he's told us in this book distort the gospel. They deny the grace of God. They turn it into a license to sin. They lead people astray from the truth. They exploit people for their own benefit. They do shameful acts. They have horrible attitudes and Jude is assuring us the Lord will execute justice upon them. So tonight, as we begin and just begin to look at Enoch's unique prophecy about Christ coming in judgment, we're going to see several aspects of this coming judgment when our Lord returns. We're going to look at two aspects tonight. First of all, the first aspect of this judgment on the ungodly is that this judgment will involve the Lord's personal presence. Notice verse 14 starts off this way. It was about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, behold, the Lord came. Now, the first thing we discover about this judgment is that the Lord himself will be present. Notice that it says he came. Behold, the Lord came, meaning that the Lord himself will physically come to carry out this judgment on the world. Now, that's different, folks. That's distinct from other judgments. Other judgments, such as the flood or, or famines or natural catastrophes, did not involve the Lord being present, physically present. 
This one will. This one is different. Now, of course, this prophecy, as we've said, is a reference to the second coming of Christ, which the New Testament states will take place at the close of the tribulation period. Jesus will come back as Zechariah predicted, as the angels said would happen as he departed from the Mount of Olives. So he will come back in physical form on the Mount of Olives. This is not the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is the Lord descending a little bit and we go up to meet him. This is his coming back seven years later at the close of the tribulation period to earth to personally deal in judgment with unbelievers. So often, though, people don't take, as I said, the return of Christ seriously because it's been so many years since Jesus said he would return. But I want you to notice something very interesting about the way that Enoch worded this. And Jude picks up on this. Notice that it is worded in the past tense. It's not worded as a future event. He says, behold, the Lord came. He doesn't say, behold, the Lord will come. Why? Why is Christ's coming presented as if it's already taken place when it hasn't? It hasn't taken place. Well, the answer to this is that it is deliberately presented this way in order to stress its certainty. In other words, Enoch and now Jude, they both speak of Christ's return in judgment as so certain and so sure that even though it hasn't happened yet, it's portrayed as an accomplished event. You occasionally read of other events like that in the New Testament, such as in Romans chapter 8, Paul said that those he chose, he also glorified. We're not glorified yet, but Paul speaks of our glorification as so certain that he speaks of it as a past tense. Jude and Enoch first speak of the coming of the Lord in such a certainty that they speak as if it's already Happen. So even though the return of Christ has has been the hope of every generation of Christians and it seems to be taking a really long time to happen, you can be certain that it will take place. And that's the encouragement for us. It will take place no matter how often it's mocked and ridiculed and scorned and and even considered absolutely irrelevant. It will take place. The primary issue then is, are you ready for his return. Have you surrendered your life, your heart, your will to Jesus as Lord and Savior? That's really the issue, because if not, then he's coming to execute judgment on you personally. And that is a frightful thought. So be ready. But not only will this coming judgment involve the Lord's personal presence, he will come back in bodily form. But when he does come, Interestingly, he won't be alone. He won't be alone. He will bring others with him, as Jude tells us. And he tells us about this in the second aspect of this judgment on the ungodly. Not only will the Lord be present personally, but Christ will be accompanied by a great multitude. Verse 14 goes on to say, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. Now, when Enoch predicted that the Lord would come to judge the ungodly, he said that he would bring with him many thousands of his holy ones. question is, who are those holy ones who accompany 
the Lord upon his return. Well, the term holy ones is used in scripture two ways. It can refer to angels. Angels are called holy ones. We're talking about the the holy angels, not fallen angels, but the angels who didn't follow Lucifer are called at times holy ones in scripture. Holy ones also is used to designate God's people, saved people, saints. We're talking about those, all saints who are those who have known Christ, the redeemed humanity. Now, Jude doesn't identify which of these holy ones are coming with him, whether he's referring to angels or God's people who have died and gone on to to heaven. But the rest of the scripture makes it very clear that when Jesus Christ returns, he'll be accompanied by both angels and redeemed humanity. Let me show you a few verses. Angels. Will angels be with Christ? Absolutely. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27 says this, for the son of man, Jesus said, is going to come in the glory of his father with his angels and will then repay every man according to their deeds. He is coming back with holy angels. Matthew, perhaps the best statement on this, the clearest is Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Jesus said, but when the son of man, speaking of himself, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. When Jesus comes back to rule, he said he's coming back with his angels. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 7 says this, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. These angels... Why do they come with him? Well, they'll be his army of workers to defeat the rebels of the world who will all be attacking, coming against Jerusalem in the battle of Armageddon. Armageddon is not one battle, by the way. It is a campaign. It is not in one area of Israel. It will be throughout the heart of Israel, the valley of Megiddo, as they will march against Jerusalem. Jesus Christ will come back to defend and protect Israel and to defeat Israel. His enemies. So the angels will be his army of warriors, not that he needs them, but they will be with him to defeat the rebels of this world, to round them up and then to cast them into the place where they will experience eternal judgment. So the Bible says that when Christ comes, the holy ones who come with him will be angels. Myriads of myriads means thousands upon thousands. It's a number that no man can possibly know or number an innumerable host of angels. But in addition to holy angels, the Bible says that God's people, those who have died and gone to heaven, will be with Christ when he returns in our glorified bodies. Let me show you this. So if if we die and go to be with the Lord, we're coming back with him. Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. Paul says, when Christ who is our life, is revealed. Revealed means he's revealed for who he is. Revealed for who he is, the glorious God of the universe. Then you, meaning you believers, will also be revealed with him in glory. That's exciting. The world will then notice who we really are. But there's more. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13 
Paul says, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Paul says when he comes, he's coming with his saints. But I'd like you to look at Revelation chapter 19, which actually does speak of the second coming of Christ. Revelation chapter 19. Now I draw your attention, first of all, to verses 7 and 8. We're told, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now, we are his bride. Paul specifically says that the church is the bride of Christ. And notice verse eight. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. This is not the. Righteousness of Jesus Christ, we already are clothed in that. The scripture says is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, I want you to notice we are the ones who are designated as having fine linen. Then if you look at verse 14, speaking of the coming of Christ. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him. On white horses. Folks, we're coming back with him. I don't know what kind of horses these are, except that they're white horses and they can fly. And these will be supernatural creations of of the Lord and we're coming back with him. We accompany Christ also when he returns. That's what Jude is telling us. What a thrilling thought. What an exciting thought to come back with Jesus Christ and to actually experience that very day when justice will finally be carried out. The day that the martyrs have been waiting for, Revelation says, they cry unto the Lord, how long, O Lord, how long will you wait until dealing out justice with those who murdered us and have done other things? Justice will finally be carried out when everyone who has hated Christ, especially the apostates, will finally be judged and dealt with in an absolute righteousness. There will be a day when Jesus says, enough, enough. My wrath is held back no more. And he comes back to this earth and we are coming with him through the galaxies with the angels. That's really the purpose of Christ's return that Enoch predicted. Judgment. He comes to judge the ungodly of this world. As I said, that includes all apostates. And the next time we study this, we're going to look specifically at that judgment. But for right now, what do we learn from Enoch's prophecy that ought to affect our lives? Well, the primary truth that Jude is teaching us is that God will judge apostates. You see... No one will ever get away with their sin. People think that they will. People think that they can do whatever they want. And the fact that Christ hasn't come back for all these years, they think that their behavior has no consequences. But that's not true. And the Lord is coming again to deal with the ungodly. So why has he waited so long to return? Why has it been over 2,000 years Well, Jude doesn't tell us, but Peter does. So let's look back at 2 Peter chapter 3 as we bring this to a close. 2 Peter chapter 3. Notice 
verses 8 and 9. Because the people of Peter's day, as many Christians do even today, have struggled with why hasn't the Lord come back? Why wait so long? But Peter says, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. What he's saying is God is outside the boundaries of time. God doesn't evaluate time the way we evaluate it. thousand years is like one day to God. So actually it's just like two days since Jesus died as far as God is concerned if we follow that analogy. Just two days since it took place. But then he adds, and this is the key, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise. Don't think he's delaying this. Don't think he's delaying in the sense because he's slow. Don't think that the Lord is slack. As some count slowness, like God can't get it done. It's not the case. Why has Jesus not come back yet? Peter says, but is patient toward you, meaning you, his elect, you, his people, not wishing for any, any of whom, any of you, meaning the elect to perish, but for all, all who, all the elect to come to repentance. This is a marvelous truth. The Lord is waiting patiently, Peter tells us, waiting patiently until all of his elect actually repent and come to faith in him. And then he will come. Think if the Lord came years ago. Many of us were not saved then. Many of us were not saved years and years ago. The Lord has waited patiently so that all of his elect come to faith. So during the tribulation period, when the last of his elect, who we don't know, who that is, but he does, when the last of his elect finally repents and is saved, then Christ says, that's it. No more mercy. No more grace. I return. And folks, we return with him if you know him. So are you ready for his return? Have you repented and trusted him as Lord and Savior? Make sure that you are coming with him and that he's not coming in order to judge you. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, what a unique prophecy. How wonderful that something that was said thousands and thousands of years ago by Enoch, who we didn't even know was a prophet, something that was said by him has been recorded for us in Scripture. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that it was inspired when he said it. And all of these years later, we're studying it, we're reading it, and we're receiving it. Lord, I thank you for the assurance that you're coming again. I, I love what you told the disciples. If it were not so, I would have told you. Thank you for that. Thank you for the hope of your coming. Lord, it helps us to be godly. It helps us to keep our eyes on you. It is a purifying Doctrine, because it reminds us that there really is a tomorrow and we really will have to give an account of our lives before you. And we want to give a good account. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, I pray 
that you will take your word and apply it to our lives, our hearts. We thank you, Lord, for the great hope that we have that we're coming with you. What a thrill. What a wonderful experience to look forward to. And thank you, Lord. We know that you will defeat your enemies. We know that no sin will go unpunished. So help us, Lord, as we move out this week into a mission field of our world to be faithful to you, to represent Christ well, to not be ashamed of you and your words, Lord, no matter how it's mocked, no matter how it's scorned and ridiculed. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.